Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Helper. And I'm Matt Taibbi. And how many days is this since the uh, stupid Bay of Pigs is what they're calling it? Yeah, uh, it's been 13 days, 15 probably when you watch this. That's right. We have to go forward a couple days in time to make that an accurate calculation. I actually found a a site that's really interesting. It's it's the days calculator. So you can pick any date in history and know how many days it's been since something happened. You know who that's really useful for? What's that useful for? Kurt Loder. Well, we don't know the day of his birth, do we? No, but we know how many days it's been since the last supper or since right. you know the meeting with stalin and uh churchill and right yeah exactly and we'll, we'll get to that because we have some we, we have some really interesting historical developments right uh about that for instance it's 8916 days since the movie jumanji was released so i think that's important to know for yeah everybody. we have a great show this week. we get old old sort of a friend of show uh, who has never been on the show, Aaron Mate, who's going to discuss some recent developments that, on a subject that is both near and dear to our hearts, the Russiagate and some other things that are going on. And we have a lot of other stuff to go over. So we might as well just dive into it, I guess, right? Yeah, let's do it. Four food groups, uh, Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Uh, isn't that weird? Isn't that horrible? So I guess we start with... Uh, isn't that Democrats terrible? Me. Isn't that terrible? Isn't that terrible, right? Yeah, exactly. These are the four food groups of news. Uh, and it's me to start, right? Democrats yep. suck. I picked out something that was kind of obvious, which was the, the quote unquote leak by Barack Obama of the of the intimate chat that he had with some of his closest advisors. There was a leak to Michael Isakoff. He was a, a reporter who was uh, integral to the driving of the Russiagate story. And this, this story is ridiculous on so many levels. So it, it was a news story in which it was revealed that Barack Obama was deeply upset about the uh, disposition of the Michael Flynn case. And uh, I just want to re- read some of the language in this story in the Yahoo piece. So the headline is exclusive. Obama says in private call in private call that, quote, rule of law is at risk in Michael Flynn case. Uh, former President Barack Obama talking privately to ex-members of his administration. Okay, this isn't a private call. This is a call that happened and was immediately leaked uh, to Yahoo News. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and guess that it was done with the assent of Barack Obama. So the premise that this was this is some kind of scoop right. is, is so transparent and ridiculous in this case. Anyway, he goes on uh, and... You know, they talk repeatedly in the same chat, a tape of which was obtained by Yahoo News. No, actually, this was this was actually handed to you, not Yahoo News. And the fact that there is no precedent, uh, this is Obama's quote, the fact that there is no precedent that anyone can find for someone who has been charged with perjury uh, just getting off scot-free, that's the kind of stuff where you begin to get worried that basic, not just institutional norms, but our basic understanding of rule of law is at, is at, list, is at risk. And these are, quote, uh, Obama's, quote, unvarnished remarks, which feel pretty varnished to me, but whatever. Uh, So this is him talking about the fact that uh, the Justice Department has dropped the Flynn case for reasons that, again, we're going to get into with 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 Aaron. But it's absurd on so many levels. First of all, again, the, the premise that this is this is not a directly leaked thing that was it was something that was sort of inadvertently uh dropped to yahoo news and then the but the other thing is this idea that the dropping of a false statements case not a perjury case as he 
as he says, uh, that this is some kind of threat to the rule of law. Mm-hmm. Um, has he ever been to Washington? Perjury happens routinely there. It's routinely excused. And you can find it on both sides of the aisle, let off constantly. Uh, just to pick a couple of examples uh, from both the Republican and Democratic Party, Bill Clinton in the uh, Monica Lewinsky case, there were multiple issue perjury issues there. There were multiple witness tampering issues there. And this is something that even people who are like, like uh, ardent supporters of Bill Clinton, it's not hard to look back at the record and see what went on there. In terms of the Bush administration, George W. Bush commuted Scooter Libby's sentence, uh, and that was a perjury case. And then my personal favorite, Dan, if you could call, pull this up, is this choice moment from testimony before the Senate by the CEO of Goldman Sachs? We didn't have a massive short against the housing market, and we certainly did not bet against our okay. clients. Okay. This is this is CEO Lloyd Blankfein saying we did not have a massive short against the housing markets. This is the same person. This, is the, this company uh, repeatedly in its own internal correspondence talked about having a big short. And this was, this was, there were multiple cases that were not pursued. It's just, it's so, it's absurd beyond belief to say that um, a false statements charge being dropped or not pursued is some kind of paradigm shifting event in Washington. This is a city where people lie literally every time they open their mouths and do so often under oath. And what we really get from the story, I think, is this is Barack Obama's extreme discomfort with the direction of this investigation. And come on, it, is he really like the voice of God off camera? Like he, he can't directly say something in, to, to a reporter. He, ha- he has to leak it out in this dramatic fashion. It just, it's just an incredibly bad look for a politician that I, I used to admire quite a lot. You know, it's, it's been four years. He, he can actually speak on camera uh, at this point. Uh, he, does, he doesn't have to speak through, through surrogates anymore, I don't think. So you're saying he's the voice of God and Lloyd Blankfein is doing God's work. So there are a lot of, a lot of men competing for that role, I guess. There, yeah, there are a lot, a lot, of, a lot of candidates for the, for the God role just in that one segment. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Exactly. Absolutely. We got two gods. Just not a great look for Barack Obama. He, he wants to be seen as being above it all, like above the fray. When they go low, we go high. But he keeps sticking, getting involved in all in all these political uh, situations. And it, it's just disingenuous not to just do it directly. I mean, he can just go on TV if he wants. Why, why doesn't he do that? Right. I don't understand. I mean, even his endorsement of Biden was late in the game uh, and followed. Yeah, and it wasn't like ex- exactly effusive. No, it wasn't. Yeah. Ugly. Anyway, what do we have for Republicans suck? So for Republicans suck, we have uh, Mike Pompeo going to Israel and basically, um, you know, giving the thumbs up to the Israeli government's desire to annex the West Bank. And of course, like this is one of those cases where uh, Republicans suck a little bit more than Dems. Like there are Dems who were opposing this, but they've already folded on this, according to Mondo Weiss. There was a letter that they were, uh, I guess I'm cheating because I'm going right to the Dem suck, but uh, the Republicans suck more. They're not opposing anything that the Israeli government is doing. Let's say that. Whereas the Dems are just folding on it. And they had written a letter opposing the Israeli government's proposed annexation of the West Bank, but it has since been modified. Uh, At first, they actually said uh, the annexation could result in, quote, severe ramifications for, end quote, for Israel's relationship with the United States. The American people might begin to question the United States, quote, unwavering security assistance, end quote, for Israel and the Democrats might 
quote, sadly conclude that Israel no longer values the bipartisan support that Congress has provided for decades. Annexation would fray our unique bonds and peril Israel's future and place out of reach it's the process. It's a double fray. We've, we've had fray come up twice. In, oh, yeah, in you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but now they're pulling it back. They've modified it um, because Ben Cardin, of course, said, I don't like to second guess Israel's government's decisions, although I've been pretty critical of a lot of policies under the Netanyahu prime ministership. Not true. People always love that, they are, that they've said that they've been critical of Netanyahu, but they're not. Anyway, the point is they've revised the letter. They've dropped that language. But bringing it back to the Republicans, Pompeo, he's a Christian Zionist who believes in the end times, I assume, and needs uh, Jews to go back to Israel where we can burn in uh, all but like 44 of us can burn in uh, eternal damnation. So, yeah. Oh, right. See, because this is the pretext for... Um... The, for yeah. the end times, right. yeah. I, I my, the church I used to go to believed very strongly in that. Uh, you went like in doing uh, investigate during a uh, investigative reporting. Yeah, I was. Or you I was willingly? in. Yeah, I wrote a I wrote a book about this, and in, in there, in I went to John Hagee's church right. for six months. Yeah, yeah, and their their whole thing is we have to kind of like bond with the Jews and uh, right. up, up until the moment where they face the final judgment. So, yeah, some of us uh, get like out. A, I wonder what the criteria is for that. I mean, I'm assuming you have to renounce everything at the end. Renounce and yeah. accept uh, Lord uh, Jesus as our Lord, yeah. what is it, as our Savior. Yeah, eat that communion wafer, the whole thing. As long as it's kosher. <laughs> A kosher communion wafer? Yeah. All right. Uh, that's pretty bad. Well, and all of right. course, people, uh, just to add the badness to that, uh, like people in Gaza, you know, they're not able to really practice uh, social distancing in Gaza right now. Um, so it's even worse than it usually is in uh, the Israeli treatment of Palestinians. It's even worse than it usually is. Hmm. And of course, people, just to add the badness to that, uh, like people in Gaza, you know, they're not able to really practice uh, social distancing in Gaza right now. So it's even worse than it usually is in uh, the Israeli treatment of Palestinians. It's even worse than it usually is. Speaking of social distancing, um, for isn't that weird? I started spotting this online. Um, under headings like isn't this terrifying and then when i looked for the legitimate news source uh that was was reporting it uh i found that uh, cnn seemed to to actually like this development quite a lot so uh, dan if we could look at the video just to set this up this is a video of a robot designed by a firm called boston dynamics that is now being used in singapore to walk around parks and tell people to get the hell away from each other. Uh, And it's this uh, creepy looking yellow robot that sort of mimics the movements of a dog. And CNN is saying this robot is reminding people to practice social distancing. Spot the robot dog broadcasts a recorded safety message to nearby people. And then you hear a spot the robot dog telling people to stay the fuck away from each other, uh, at least one meter apart. Outfitted with cameras, spot can also spot how many count how many people there are in the park. Cameras don't track or recognize specific individuals, and then there's sort of a cheery, cheery shot with the plug of Boston Dynamics. All right, so and its name is Spot. Its name is Spot because it's cute, right? It's, it's a like dog, a yeah. it's like a Doesn't robot work. dog. Yeah. So for those for those who don't spend an unhealthy amount of time on YouTube, Boston Dynamics is like one of these things that. Um, it's like one of the first five things that you're introduced to when you smoke too much marijuana and spend time on YouTube. Like hypothetically. that's 
hypothetically, right? Like if that was something that you were going to do, you 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 might go on YouTube and look up uh, Boston Dynamics robot videos because basically this company just loves to put out videos of its la latest disturbing robot inventions that it's it always has like walking into uh, warehouses and trying to pick things up and then it's, it's developers are always hitting it with hockey sticks uh, or kicking Jeez. it down hills and then it like kind of gets up again and staggers toward its goal and it's basically terrifying because what's bad about this particular thing is that this is this is the beginning, I think, of the moment when, like, robot police are going to enter our lives. And if and if nobody is afraid of what that's going to look like, I think we should all recall this particular scene from RoboCop. Use your gun in a threatening manner. Please put down your weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply. We shouldn't be so worried, can... though, because in that <laughs> case, that machine was able to spot the individual. Spot. Oh, no. Wow. Oh, spot. spot. I didn't even realize that. But Spot the dog wouldn't do that. So he would never do something like that. Right. Yeah. See, but I just don't. I don't. Tr so Boston Dynamics to me, like, OK, great. They, they introduced scary, a little a little cutesy yellow dog looking thing. Uh, but how long is it going to be before they have this massive Ed 209 uh, robotic law enforcement thing walking through neighborhoods and uh, cities all over the world and twisting your head off if you don't put up enough money in the parking meter or whatever. Like, I just, uh, I feel like this is, this is happening now. The pandemic is accelerating all these um, sort of dystopian fears. I don't know how you feel about that. That made me a little nervous. Yeah. So in that, in that scene from RoboCop, the idea is that it malfunctioned or it, yeah, so yeah. at 209, which I, which I love, it's like the, the, the last iteration of claymation. It's like, a, it's like an electronic razor yeah. uh, with feet, uh, but it's huge. And yeah. it tells somebody to drop drop its gun, and he, he does, but it just malfunctions and, yeah. just and blows the person away. I think we can assume that there are going to be going to be errors along those lines. The good news, what's comforting, is that at least they're not making it a cute dog. That would really scare me. Like, if they made it looked like my dog Bodie, I'd be really nervous. I'm not saying I'm not nervous about a robotized uh, police state and the violation of civil liberties, I am. I'm just saying it could be worse because if it were like a cute looking dog, it would be really disarming. Right, that's true, right, yeah. If they, if they made it cute, that would be that would be more upsetting. Yeah, or, or if they, they had human models that like reminded you of people that you knew that you liked or, so, or right. something like that. Yeah, you know, that would be upsetting. But right now they just look like big scary machines, but you know that's, you know that's coming too, right? The cute like, furry dogs? You know, they're gonna have, yeah, they're gonna have cute furry dogs, but you know, they're they're actually capable of, you know, pulling every one of your limbs out on, on command. I don't know, I'm just paranoid. As someone who's watched those Boston Dynamics videos, those like, uh, over and over and over again over the years uh, and wondered when exactly those were going to appear in our lives. I just I was not thrilled that this is actually the moment that, that it happened. All right, what, what do we have for, isn't that terrible? Isn't that terrible? We have, uh, reading at the Daily News, a uh, woman goes mad after being told McDonald's is closed, shoots and injures three employees. So police say an Oklahoma City woman shot three McDonald's employees Wednesday night after being told the restaurant's dining area was closed. Gloricia Woody, 32, was arrested shortly after the incident, uh, Oklahoma City police said in a statement. Cops said Woody was found a few blocks from McDonald's and could be seen on surveillance footage during the shooting. 
The injured employees, two of whom are 16 years old, did not have life-threatening injuries. Police said one employee was shot in the arm while two others were hit with shrapnel. A fourth employee was also injured but not shot. Yeah, so the altercation began after employees told Woody that the restaurant's dining area was closed because of coronavirus. Woody was forced out of the restaurant but returned with a gun and fired three rounds, according to the cops. Businesses in Oklahoma have been allowed to reopen following the state's coronavirus lockdown, but this particular McDonald's in southwest Oklahoma city has stuck to takeout and delivery orders only. So, I mean, it's terrible. It could be worse. Could have been a fatal shooting. It's it's also terrible. When I first saw this, I kind of assumed it wasn't premeditated. I thought she just had her gun on her and got really upset and was triggered, so to speak, in the moment. But uh, this is much more premeditated. You live in America, right? I mean, don't don't you assume every time you talk to anybody that, you know, at any moment they could take offense to say, pull, pull out a gun and shoot you in the head? Okay, I, I, I have that sort of permanently higher than my... Do you really calculation you walk around with that? interacting with people? I do. I mm. do. I mean, less, less so in this part of the country, I'll, I'll say, but you, you behave differently towards Americans who certainly on the highway, right? Like if people are aggressive drivers, you know, you were in the, you might've been tempted to give somebody the, the, the finger. Like now I don't even think about doing that. Yeah. I always feel bad whenever they're, I'm with a, like a male friend or a boyfriend and something happens and I, and I speak out. I, I feel bad because I realize like they're usually the ones who will face the wrath if anything goes wrong. You never want to write a check that somebody else has to cash yeah, in that exactly. situation, yeah, <laughs> right? Right. But uh, but 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 if you're speaking out on behalf of somebody else, I think that's that's an exception to this rule. Although yeah. I have I have I have had that. I mean, there a lot of weird things happen in the subway in New yeah. York, and you do occasionally have to say something. Um, but it, it definitely enters your mind that in America they can pull out almost any kind of weapon at any time and just yeah. start firing it in all directions. And I don't, I don't even expect it to be a small weapon in this country. Do you? Do you? I mean, it could be Ed. It could be Ed two hundred nine exactly. Yeah. 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 So you should. It should be. If you see something, say something. But remember, they could be armed. That should be the uh, the slogan instead of if you see something, say something. I mean, it could really just be if you see something, keep it to yourself. Right. And, and quietly snitch later. Yeah. You know? Right. <laughs> if you see know. something, snitch later. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. So that was the four food groups. So we talked last week about the the hilarious failed coup attempt of I guess it was how many was it sixty seven. Uh, private security contractors who tried to invade Venezuela and take on 47,000 people. And yeah. one of them had an airsoft rifle instead of a real weapon. And they, it kind of didn't work. And they were tweeting as they were heading into the battle zone, which, you know, the, the OPSEC on that is kind of dubious. Um, and then we, we watched some ridiculous videos of uh, this fellow named Justin Goudreau. Justin, right? Jordan. Okay, Jordan. Jordan, geez, all right, whatever. Or, Jor or, Jordan, okay, Jordan slash Justin Goudreau, yeah. who was basically, he, he did like this video of himself in, in, in basically every shirtless pose you can imagine, yeah. along with uh, his his uh, adorable life-threatening pit, pit bull. And he was like jump punching into, into heavy bags. And we were really sort of wondering if this was actually the funniest story, sort of foreign policy story of all time. And now we're just going to revisit, I guess, what's happened in the meantime. Like, what, what have we learned? Well, more people have been captured, um, more mercenaries, as um, Maduro is calling them. 
I also looked into uh, more of Jordan's backstory, and I can't believe you forgot his name was Jordan. We we established that a Jordan is a Canadian man with uh, masculinity right. issues, and we also right. gave birth to that great phrase, okay, Jordan. Um, okay, Jordan, right, yes. Yeah, which we're obviously going to have to use more because you already forgot about it. Well, I'm losing, I mean, I'm senile, so Oh, right, that's, true. Yeah. So it, it, it turns out that this guy was inspired to start this company uh, after the Parkland shooting. And he also uh, did security at a Richard Branson concert that was anti-Maduro uh, and held in Colombia. And he retired early from the, the military. He was a Green Beret. He retired after a parachuting accident left his back, uh, left him with a concussion and back injuries. Can, can I just interrupt quickly? Just the, the whole thing about the park plan yeah. thing, because this is one of the funnier details of the whole thing. So in the in the inevitable Vox explainer right. about the, what do they call it? The, the dumb Bay of Pigs? Is that, yeah. is that the new stupid, name for this? Stupid Bay of Pigs. Yeah. Stu, stu, stupid Bay of Pigs. It's, it's amazing. They go into detail about how he, after the 2018 school shooting in Parkland, Florida, Goudreau saw dollar signs. I saw, quote, I saw Parkland and I was like, well, nobody's really tackling this. So I want to fix this. And then it goes on and in Vox's own words, his big idea, have ex-special forces operatives embed in schools and pose as teachers. Since students would not know their instructors' actual identities, they might be more willing to describe how they're feeling or even maybe reveal their intentions to shoot up a school. I guess it's an improvement over a yellow robotic teacher. Right. Right. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but <laughs> but you suddenly have this sort of power lifter looking ex special forces guy right. with a buzz cut show up in your school, and he's not really teaching a class. Um, it's or a if he is, he really doesn't know what the, It's totally. It's it's yeah. It's it's yeah, it's twenty one Jump Street meets uh, RoboCop, Kindergarten Cop, and Kindergarten Cop. Yeah, Robo Kindergarten Cop. Robo, Robo Kindergarten, kindergarten Cop. Cop. Yeah. It's not I mean, this guy room. actually had this idea, and I'm assuming somebody, somebody like went for it, right? Uh, and then here's the quote from Goudreau about that. He's imagining how this is going to go. He's like, quote, he's just a, he's a cool shop teacher. Hey, what's up, fellas? Um, I go sit down with a kid alone who's playing Dungeons and Dragons, and I just try to see whether there's any problems. So I love the idea that it's the, the kid who's playing D&D who's right. maybe going to shoot up the school and he'll the ex special forces guy is just going to be that that person who's going to get that that kid to open up right, right? And the kid has probably been beaten into a pulp by by people who look exactly like that right. um is is going to uh, is going to open up to that dude anyway go ahead i'm sorry i just no, no, I thought no. that was extremely funny uh he also apparently on his website uh plagiarized from tony robbins yes and, can't blame him. Who who hasn't been can't blame to him, do yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Um, who, who among us? Who among us? But it reminded me of uh, his parachuting injury. Reminded me of something that uh, Marco Rubio said uh, once during a debate. My brother is a veteran. We're very proud of him in our family. He served as a Green Beret in the Seven Special Forces from 1968 through 1971. And as part of his training, he jumped out of an airplane and he lost his two front teeth. And for years, he's had to go to get these so, dental claims. So it just reminded me of another injury in the line of duty this whole story is is absurd beyond belief and uh, i i'm convinced that it's not getting as much ink as it would under any normal circumstance because we're in the middle of a global disaster but right. 
even the Bay of Pigs wasn't anywhere near on the order of stupidity of this thing that, so, that somebody had to actually go for. So I, I, I thought since Goudreau is from Canada, and, and this has kind of come up a few times in the show, I thought we, we, should, we should just finally go ahead and have the debate about whether we're yay or nay on Canada generally. Oh, wow. You're going there. Okay. Oh, today, our guest today is a Canuck. Is he really? Yeah, Aaron Mate from uh, Vancouver. So interestingly about Canadian people is that they will actually answer this question in a way that's not like reflexively defensive. They'll, they will actually get really somber about this question, about whether they themselves are, are yay or nay about Canada. Mm. Should we just count up what, what the pluses and minuses sure. are? I mean, I think for plus, for me, I've got SCTV, Syrup, Gordon Lightfoot, William Shatner, Trees, like, I don't know. What do you, what do you have? Healthcare. Healthcare. Lack right. of guns, relatively speaking. Does it have a lack of guns, relatively speaking? I think they just behave better with Oh, guns. well, lack of, like, automatics. I'm pretty sure that Canada actually has pretty loose gun laws, and they, they, they just, because they're better people than us, they I think you just gave away your... Well, okay, so if Canadians are better people than us, does that make you pro or anti? Because I could actually see you well, there's, resenting them for that and making you but anti. But there's things about America. I mean, we're, Americans are full of terrible people, but there's lots of things I like about America. I mean, okay, I, go. you know. So, well, okay, well, let's get to the negative stuff about Canada. Okay. I mean, did we did we really say all the positives? Healthcare, no, no. better behaved gun, gunmanship, gun ownership. Um, I like the flag. The flag is cute. Uh, John Candy, Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, well, Martin so Short. I, I, I mentioned SCTV, so I think and that, that falls. covers all of them. Michael Moore. I mean, Mike Myers. Mike Myers. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't on SCTV. A lot of funny folk. Yeah. From Canada, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. Um, is that everything positively about about Canada? Aaron Mate. Aaron Mate. All right. Well, let's let's just cycle in some of the negative things. Uh, the Al Alberta oil sands uh, deposits. I mean, I think there's like 300 billion tons of toxic oil sludge there. So they got to clean that thing up. Yeah, right? it's no good. And, and that kind of runs counter to the image that we have here in America of, of Canadians as this very clean. Very you know, racist, very racist, very undercovered underexplored racism in oh canada is? yes towards their first nations people right yes okay that's a th actually I, I think if you ask most canadians that's one of the things they would bring up yeah the right? honest ones you're the honest ones we'll ask aaron about this yeah thunder bay is a great podcast about that canadian racism yeah that seems like it's a it's a major theme in that in that country and it has been for for quite a while, right? Yeah. Uh, although, who are we to talk? Well, so. no, of course, but we get, that's very well known about the United States. It's like as American right. as apple pie and guns and McDonald's is, is, is right. American, U.S. racism. But uh, right. Canadian racism really doesn't get enough uh, shine. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. What's, what's, your, what's your feeling about uh, lots of Lifetime movies being shot in Canada? makes me feel uh, jealous. Jealous? Okay. Yeah. I, I put that in the positive category. I like a lot of those movies. Oh, me too. You know? But I, that's yeah. why I felt jealous. Like, why can't it be shot here? I think it has something to do with how, how expensive yeah, or not yeah. it is to shoot, shoot a movie. Well, so you're really, I just want to rephrase your question. What you're asking me is whether I'm 
you're asking me my position on Lifetime movies, and yes, I'm very pro Lifetime movies. Right. Pro life. Yeah. So am I Lifetime. actually. Yeah. Yeah. What I like about Lifetime movies is that when you meet the man in scene one, you, you can take you can place bets on when he starts stealing from her. Uh-huh. It's usually like between minute thirty and minute fifty mm. of the movie. Right. Okay, I'm gonna have to rewatch everything and see. I, I right. that sounds about right now that I'm I'm looking back and in retrospect. Yeah, she starts noticing money's missing from the from you know her purse. Right. Then uh, she, she she goes to use her charge card and it doesn't work. Right. Yes. And then and then it gets really heavy late later on. But it, and then should we just look at this video of Tom Green with a moose? He's Tom Green's Canadian. Like I I don't know how you feel about this video. I was just driving along and I was trying to open up a can of juice and adjust my radio at the same time. And then all of a sudden, this thing jumps out of the woods right in front of me. I'm like, ah! Maybe we can revive it. Come on, here. Oh, we gotta go. I'll, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hump it like this and you give it help come out, okay? Come on! Come on! You guys, we can help it! Guys, come back! We can help him! We can revive him! Come back! Come on, come on. <laughs> is that really a dead moose? How did he you find a dead awful? moose? He just came across it. I mean, he's in Canada. I'm sure that I think there. It's not All that un, uncommon. I think yeah, you should be able to find a dead moose in Canada. How do we feel about that? I'm anti. I'm pro. That's necrophilia bestiality combo. <laughs> he didn't actually penetrate the moose. Well, no, but it's got you know. It's fine line. It's necrophilia adjacent. That scene was the inspiration for a similar scene in Freddy Got Fingered. But uh, and then how you, how you feel about that movie says a lot about how you feel about Canada. I, I'm just I'm going to go I'm yay on Canada. You're yay. Overall. Okay. How about you? I mean, I feel like to have an interesting, you know, there's the Boston dynamics. We need to have Canadian dynamics. So I'm going to have to go nay. You're going to go nay on Canada? Yeah. We can't both. We can't have a pro Canada lot. We ha- we can't have a pro Canada block. We need to have a divided house. <laughs> All right, I, I, will, I will proudly I will proudly represent the the, the pro Canada block. I'll, t- in this I'll show. take your pro Canada and raise you to pro Cuba. Okay, so you're more pro Cuba. We're going to take a country that starts with a C that has socialist tendencies. Not to compare them. But uh, that's my country of choice, Cuba. We could make this a segment on every show. We'll just we'll talk about a country that begins with C. We can do yeah. Cameroon next time. Cameroon, yeah. So okay, so we're split on split on Canada, and we yeah. can we can make Aaron the deciding vote. But this whole uh, Venezuelan story also allows us to look into reading at Common Dreams. Um, Biden sides with Trump, Bolton, and Pompeo. Totally full circle. Wow. In backing coup effort in Venezuela, Democratic frontrunner characterizes effort to overthrow elected government of President Nicolas Maduro at gunpoint. Just another benign effort to restore democracy <laughs> in Latin America. And it's really what's especially great about this is that the image that accompanies this article is Biden holding an ice cream cone in one hand and dollar bills in another. So again, if we, you know, there's so much American symbolism. So we got it's as American as apple pie, uh, McDonald's, shooting, swirl cones, and dollar bills. Right, right. All those things are excellent things. And uh, um, imperialism. 
and imperialism. Another benign effort. I wonder how many times we've used Sorry, that word. Sorry, he didn't word, say benign. benign. Benign was the was the journalist word. The actual quote was to restore democracy. Yeah. So coming up next, we're going to talk to Aaron Mate, who is a Canadian man who is interested in Russia, and um, we're going to talk to him about stuff. Yeah. Really excited to be talking to Aaron Mate, who is the host of the Pushback, which is a show at the Gray Zone. He's also written for places like The Nation and won an Izzy Award. So two, three of us two have of won us. Izzy. Yeah. Great. I feel like a total underachiever. Uh, welcome, Aaron. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, Matt, belated congratulations on your Izzy Award. Thank you. And, and likewise, did I ever congratulate you on yours? If I didn't, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sure you did. And, uh, <laughs> but I'll take it again. Uh, so we, we've actually been waiting for the right moment to invite you on the show because obviously just going by the name of the show, Russiagate is a fruitful topic for us. It always has been. We talked about it from the start. But we figured it would be great to wait for a moment when this story resurfaced in a huge way to have you on to help sort of walk folks through everything that's happened. And I, would you agree we're at one of those moments? I mean, in the, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen court documents declassified, FBI notes declassified, 6,000 pages of court testimony. There's just a ton of stuff that, you know, I think basically reduces the whole Russiagate story to rubble almost at this point. But it, it, could you walk us through what the main revelations of the last few weeks are? One of the reasons why I was so opposed to Russiagate being the main focus for Trump's opposition for over three years is that, you know, all the available evidence just showed how baseless it was. And it was pretty clear that once it collapsed, it would hand Trump two gifts. First of all, it would give him the gift of throughout however long it took for this thing to end, Trump's resistance being distracted into, you know, this dumb conspiracy theory that he conspired with or was blackmailed by Russia. And two, when it collapsed, it would give him the gift of uh, vindication. And then as more and more evidence came out as to how this whole thing started, Trump would be able to exploit it and use it for his reelection campaign and say, look at how these people tried to stop me and uh, how they tried to take me down and basically use it as an excuse for being so awful on everything else. And now we're seeing that third phase where the more evidence comes out, the more it shows that the intelligence officials who started this whole thing and kept it going knew that they had no evidence of Trump-Russia collusion and committed basically fraud to keep their investigation going. I mean, we already got a semblance of that from the Horowitz report when uh, you know uh, the inspector general of the DOJ documented cases where the uh, FBI basically hid evidence from the court and even changed evidence to get a surveillance warrant on Carter Page and downplayed the fact that they are relying on the Steele dossier, this moronic piece of opposition research paid for by the Democratic Party. And now we're learning in the case of uh, Michael Flynn, who was you know, and you've written about him extensively, Matt, you know, he his case really helped get this whole thing going in its early stages and right after Trump took office in January 2017, where they had opened up this counterintelligence investigation on him on totally baseless grounds. Uh, but once they realized that they had nothing, they moved to close it. But then, as we've seen now from the documents, you had FBI agents intervening to keep his case open and coming up with a, a ridiculous pretext to interview him 
and basically try to nail him in a lie. Um, and, you know, his case never made sense because it was never even clear exactly what he lied about from the notes that we got of the FBI conversation with him. It, it, it was more that he misremembered the details that they were talking to him about, which was his phone call with the Russian ambassador. So the case was always sketchy. And now we're realizing why that basically it was a setup. And so all of this, you know, fuels this once again. And it's a good excuse for Trump at a time when he's looking terrible because of his awful response to the coronavirus. And I think heading into 2020, we're going to see this discussed even more. When you talk about the pretext that they that they used to interview Flynn, I, I thought one of the interesting moments in all this testimony was when they asked McCabe, uh, who was the deputy director of the FBI, like, what was your thinking uh, in terms of approaching Flynn? Where, where was, were you with the case in late December? And he basically says, you know, we were, you know, we were basically at an at an impasse. We we hadn't found anything substantive. Then they said, well, why did you decide to go back and re-interview him? And I thought there was an amazing passage, if I can find it, in his testimony where he says, uh, the record of his conversation with Ambassador Kisilak had become widely known in the press. And, we want, and so we wanted to sit down with General Flynn and understand kind of what his thoughts on that conversation are. And so for people who aren't familiar with what this, this is, in between their... Uh, Flynn talking to this ambassador uh, and this moment, a record of this conversation had been leaked illegally to the Washington Post. And now this becomes the pretext to go back and re-interview him. I mean, that, that's a bad look for both the press and for the FBI, isn't it? I mean, or, or what exactly are the dynamics of that? Oh, sure. I mean, look, the, yeah. I mean, first of all, the FBI had no reason to interview Flynn because as you say, the conversation with Kislyak was wiretapped. So if Flynn had done anything wrong, uh, they could have confronted him about it um, and told him exactly what he did. And, and, you know, there was this invention later on that Kislyak had promised Russia some sort, some form of sanctions relief. Uh, and uh, because Obama had just imposed new sanctions on Russia. So there was speculation that, that Flynn had basically uh, told Russia not to worry about the sanctions and that they were going to go away. Uh, because uh, because the Trump administration was coming in, and that was possibly some kind of payoff for some illicit Russian help. What actually happened was on the call, if you look at what we know about it, is basically Flynn telling Kislyak, look, we're about to come in anyway, so no matter what you do in response to these sanctions that Obama just put on you, don't escalate the situation. Just, you know, like whatever you do, respond proportionally. So, which is a totally normal thing to say. And Flynn, by the way, also asked for Russia's help in voting against a UN Security Council resolution uh, that was going to criticize Israeli settlement building in the occupied territories. And for the first time, basically, Obama had decided that they they weren't going to veto it after previously protecting Israeli policies multiple times at the UN. This time, they weren't going to vote for it, but Obama was going to abstain. And so the Israeli government asked the Trump campaign to try to kill it. And so among the people who Flynn reached out to was Kislyak. But it's funny. Even though that shows the actually only documented case of Trump campaign collusion with a foreign power, we don't talk about it because the government happens to be Israel and support for Israel, with the exception of that one Obama decision, that one Obama vote, is pretty much bipartisan. So we've ignored that. 
Israel Gate. It could be called Israel Gate. It, it should be called. There, there should be an Israel Gate. I mean, Sheldon Adelson <laughs> was apparently involved in this thing, too. And the Trump team worked very hard to try to get people to vote against this measure, which failed. And right. By the way, Ironically, it failed. Right. I mean, they they didn't uh, get the, the Russians to do what they wanted. No, they didn't. So th this first instance where you have potential, you know, right after the election, this opportunity for Trump and Russia to work together, Russia told them no. And they and they, and they voted uh, for this measure as well. So, I mean, you know, the but the Flynn thing was very damaging because they were able to um, accuse him of lying because he didn't quite remember the details of his calls with Kislyak. A call, by the way, that he made while he was drunk, I think. On yeah, vacation I heard that too, yeah. In the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And turned that into some kind of thing that Flynn was compromised. And But look, you know, the they never should have investigated him or anybody else in the Trump campaign to begin with. And we, we've we learned recently how the entire thing began. It's based supposedly on this tip that the FBI gets in the summer of 2016 about George Papadopoulos, which is like a, who's a low level Trump campaign volunteer, you know, this unpaid foreign policy advisor. And the FBI gets a tip from an Australian diplomat, Alexander Downer, that Papadopoulos quote, suggested that Russia had made some kind of suggestion. That's almost an exact quote. And the uh, suggestion of Russian uh, help didn't even mention the stolen emails at the heart of Russiagate. So it was the most vague, ambiguous tip. But yet that was used as the basis for this entire thing. And once they opened up that, then they thought, all right, well, who else in the Trump campaign might possibly be receptive to a suggestion from Russia of help if such a, if, if such a suggestion even exists? Because they weren't even sure because it was just a suggestion. And then they went, well, Flynn. All right. Well, Flynn went to this RT gala in December of 2015. Uh, Flynn works for Trump now. And Flynn has uh, other undefined ties to Russian entities. Although they don't say exactly what that is. Um, and we're so we're learning that now from the uh, predicate document for Flynn that basically all they used was this open source information to take their ridiculous Papadopoulos uh, uh, predicating investigation and move it to people like Flynn. So the idea of him being investigated for collusion was ridiculous to begin with. And what compounds the fraud is that even after they realized that, they kept it going. And by the way, speaking of fraud and ridiculous investigations, we've actually just gotten, I think, the most bombshell right. disclosure yet, which is that, you know, before even the collusion thing comes this allegation that Russia hacked the emails. And everyone's taken that on faith because we're supposed to worship our intelligence officials and not question anything they say. Well, now we just found out that the that the entity that generated the Russian hacking allegation and was used as a critical source for U.S. intelligence officials, including Robert Mueller, admitted behind closed doors that it actually has no evidence that alleged Russian hackers stole the emails. I'm talking about CrowdStrike, which is this firm hired by the DNC. Uh, they Their president, Sean Henry, gave an interview to the House Intelligence Committee in December of 2017. We just got the, the, the transcript uh, just now, just last week. And Henry says, yeah, uh, when it comes to the actual exfiltration of the emails from the server, we have no evidence. Why did they make that public? Well, they had to because all these uh, interviews were, uh, why did they make this interview like, public? Why now? are we just, like you just said, it happened in 2017 and we're just learning about it now. So what is the chronology in terms of why we're learning about it now? Well, I blame someone who I blame for pretty much almost everything that's gone wrong. Adam with Schiff. Adam Schiff. Yeah. Right. He has done putting him in a central role in the Democratic opposition, I think has been a disaster. And I, I worry is going to is going to help um, 
reelect Trump. I really do. So Schiff. So back when all these uh, back when all these interviews were done, the Republicans controlled the committee. So they voted actually with everybody else, including Democrats, in September of 2018 to uh, declassify those transcripts. And so they sent them for declassification, which went under a review. That review got completed. But at a certain point, Adam Schiff takes over the committee after Democrats win the midterms. And Schiff told the director of national intelligence that the White House is not allowed to review any of these transcripts for executive privilege, which basically stalled the process. And it led to this this protracted thing where finally, just recently, Republicans and uh, Richard Grinnell, the new director of national intelligence, you know, urged Schiff to release the transcripts and Grinnell suggested that he would anyway. So Schiff finally relented. So now, and meanwhile, we've also learned that during this time that we were denied those those transcripts, you know, Schiff was telling us that he had seen secret evidence of collusion. He was more than almost anybody else fanning the flames of collusion. Well, now we learn from all the transcripts that Schiff has just released that all of his witnesses told them the exact opposite, that actually nobody had any evidence of collusion at, at all, which is not surprising because the whole thing is so dumb to begin with. Yeah, I mean, that's the, there's a couple of really striking things in all the testimony, but but all of the national security officials they interviewed about this, and mostly it's Trey Gowdy, right, who's asking this question, like what what the South Carolina congressman at the time. He's like, what evidence do you have at this point of collusion or conspiracy or however you want to define it? And one after the other, they all basically give the same answer, whether it's Loretta Lynch or you know, Mary McCord or, or Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates or, or James Clapper. They all basically say, yeah, well, we don't have anything yet or we, we're still in the, the fact-gathering stage or up until I left office, we, we didn't have anything. But that that was the answer, and and uh, Schiff must have known that, which is which is part of what's so amazing about what you're saying, right? He did know that, but he's I believe he's a pathological liar. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's done. Uh, he presented the public with this totally false narrative that he had seen the secret evidence. He he can't get into it, but you know, and it, it's directly contradicted what he was told. And no one has. And if you look at all his public statements on this, they're so disingenuous. But unfortunately. Nobody on MSNBC or CNN challenged him. So he was able to get away with, along with others, get away with just lying to the public and building up people's hopes, making them believe that Robert Mueller was going to uncover the grand conspiracy. And of course, it inevitably had to collapse uh, because the facts just are not there. And the damage they've done is incalculable. I mean, look, one of the other things Schiff did was keep Bernie Sanders off of the campaign trail in critical states in Iowa and South Carolina during the primary. So Bernie Sanders could sit in the Senate and listen to Adam Schiff tell us that we have to send weapons to Ukraine so that we can fight Russia over there and not fight them over here. And literally, and now we've got, you know, Bernie Sanders people have said that because Bernie had to be in the Senate for that, that he was deprived of critical visits inside uh, the key early primary states. So, you know, which to me is not surprising because part of the big reason we got Russiagate was for the same people who wanted to destroy Bernie Sanders in the Democratic Party was a way for them to hold on to their power because, you know, blaming Russia and a conspiracy with Trump was an easy way to avoid self-reflection. Aaron Mate's famous uh, turn of phrase, what is it? Privilege protection racket. It was a total privilege protection racket. It, it, it um, allowed, uh, you know, elite journalists to pretend that they're challenging power by looking for this missing Trump-Russia conspiracy, uh, while meanwhile uh, propping up, you know, 
incredibly powerful centers in this country, especially those that want to demonize Russia and have a cold war with Russia and profit from a cold war with Russia. And also, uh, you know, worshiping intelligence officials like John Brennan and making them our new heroes. It was totally anti-progressive and reactionary. And look, that's why on the eve of the Nevada primary, you guys have talked about this, uh, but it's, it's worth reflecting on for any progressive, especially who got enrolled in believing Russiagate on the eve of the Nevada caucus, what happens? Well, Bernie's doing well. So intelligence officials leak this report, this claim that Russia now prefers Bernie Sanders and is trying to help him win. So it's no surprise that this uh, reactionary anti-progressive fixation that dominated everything for three years was used to undermine Bernie. And I think, I mean, I know there's a progressive audience watching this. So what I hope is anybody who got duped into believing Russiagate you know, and I get why, because we were presented overwhelmingly with one narrative. But I hope there can be some reflection on, you know, next time not going along with narratives that are ultimately aimed at destroying the progressive cause, which, you know, in this case, it did do serious damage. And the other people at, uh, whose privilege are protected were the consultants, right? Because if you blame the election of Donald Trump on Russian intervention, you don't have to look at what these campaigns did that were you know incorrectly yeah or the media that you know gave right. trump billions of dollars worth of free airtime it was it was the perfect deflection is to blame everybody but ourselves and not to look at the the system we have and whether or not uh, there was legitimate grievance that led trump that that trump exploited you know um it was the perfect way to avoid any mention of that and it's it's sad to me that bernie sanders looking back now with hindsight I wish Bernie Sanders had had the sense to stand up and say, you know what, all this is way overblown. Whether or not Russia stole some emails, um, this is not worthy of all this attention that it's getting. And there are real issues that we need to focus on. Uh, and we don't need to like worship intelligence officials and promote war with Russia to challenge Trump. There are other ways to do it. He could have repeated his enough about the goddamn emails. He could have again in this. He could have. Yeah. And I say this with hindsight. At the time, I was sympathetic. I, mean, I don't know exactly what Bernie believes. I don't expect him to share my beliefs. But to the extent he knew that this was not everything it was cracked up to be, I thought maybe it was understandable that he didn't say anything because had he done so, his cynical opponents would have called him a Putin apologist and working with Trump and slammed him even more. So I could get the tactical argument. But now I'm seeing I think that was a mistake. Backfired. because. When you don't push back on this stuff, you you help give it life. And it was ultimately used to bring him down. And it ultimately gave Trump just such a massive gift. So throughout the time that all this happened, like I, I immediately focused on the collusion stuff just because that was it, there were just so many obvious issues there that I thought needed to be explored. And it just seemed more ridiculous to me. But you've 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 focused a lot more than I think anybody else in the press has on the initial story, the story about the, the, the degree of culpability that Russia might have had for the, the DNC hack. Um, and obviously, you looked at the recent testimony of, uh, involving Henry. Can you walk us through what the deficiencies might be in the story that Russia did this? Uh, because I think they're, they're, they're mo the reaction to most of this stuff has been, yeah, but Russia did it. Yeah. So whatever. Right. Yeah. But it, but there are issues there, too, aren't there? Sure. Well, look, there was a fundamental deficiency. And uh, Glenn Greenwald was, I think, the most vocal in pointing it out, along with Robert Perry, the late Robert Perry of Consortium News. But Glenn Greenwald just made a very conservative point at the very beginning, which is that 
We don't accept intelligence officials' claims on faith. That should have been the lesson of things like the Iraq War. I mean, we should see concrete evidence. And, you know, I just sort of took that as a mantra in how I approach all these claims about Russian interference. There was all, there was a lot said, but we got very little in the way of evidence. We didn't get any, really anything until Mueller indicted some Russian GRU officers in July of 2018. But that was a long time after this whole thing started. And meanwhile, everybody was just repeating as truth that Russia had attacked the U.S. with this email hack. And by the way, even if the allegations against Russia are true, it, it was a completely empire, American-centric way of looking at it, this idea that stealing some emails is akin to you know Pearl Harbor and 9-11, which is the way it was described. When meanwhile, what, you know, what we do, if we were just stealing other countries' emails, they would be you know, they would they, they, they would be so grateful. Meanwhile, in reality, we're imposing murderous sanctions on countries like Cuba and Iran and Venezuela, depriving them of medicine, you know, putting in hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars into proxy wars and wars on countries. So anyway, you know, even the way it was discussed, even if the allegation was true, was ridiculous. But on the merits of the allegation, yeah, I mean, again, uh, it was generated by CrowdStrike. The fact that CrowdStrike was a DNC contractor should have raised immediate red flags in the same way that the other core plank of the Russian of Russiagate collusion was generated by another DNC contractor, Fusion GPS. And um, from the start, the the evidence was sketchy. It was even based on a lot of uh, inferences. They would say things and use qualified language like the actors inside the DNC were uh, their actions were consistent with actions associated with Russian intelligence. But even when people at CrowdStrike said that, you know, there was already reasons to question their credibility because when they've made similar claims about Russia and Ukraine, they had to retract it. When they made, when they accused Russia of hacking Ukrainian military hardware with similar software, they said they found inside the DNC server, they had to retract that. So even their track record is pretty sketchy. Plus their partisan affiliation. Their co-founder is a, fellow at the Atlantic Council, which is a, basically a pro-NATO organization. Um, and uh, and there are DNC contractors. So I never understood why we should take their view on faith. And then you look at what the indictments produced. Mueller's timeline uh, was strange. You know, Julian Assange announced on June 12th that he had Democratic Party emails. According to Mueller, it was only after then that uh, Assange first made contact with Guccifer 2.0 who Mueller suggested, but didn't even outright say, but suggested uh, was the source that gave Assange the email. So according to Assange, to Mueller's timeline, Assange would have announced the emails before he even communicated with the person who may have provided it to him. So that part didn't make sense. And then you have sketchy qualified language inside the Mueller report. Uh, and I think now we're finding out why there was that hedging is because CrowdStrike, the firm that first made the allegation, now says it has no actual evidence that anything left the DNC server. And then you have the- So you're just, just, you're saying that the lack of, the chronology revealed suggests that it was not Guccifer, but someone else who gave uh, Assange the documents, right? Exactly right, because Assange- Or some of them. Or, 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 so, or yeah, some yeah. of them. Be, because Assange announced, you know, bef uh, that he had the emails before, according to Mueller, he even communicated with Guccifer 2.0. And more than a month before he even received anything for, from Guccifer 2.0. Right. And, and Mueller alleges that Guccifer 2.0 was likely right. a Russian intelligence cutout. So, so the, it just so, means there was someone else who wasn't 
that, right? Yeah. I'm just, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And but Assange has said that, you know, Assange has said, and I think that the new testimony from CrowdStrike, you know, um, bolsters what 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 he said. He said that it's quite possible and even likely that there were state actors, including Russia, who hacked the DNC. But whoever those hackers were, were not our source, uh, you know. And it'd be great if we could hear more from Assange, but unfortunately, he's caged right now, and the U.S. has refused WikiLeaks's efforts to have discussions about this. Um, so that is, and they never interviewed him, which I always thought was odd. It's so strange. I mean, Milton Mueller. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even if you hate him, wouldn't you want to interview him? Yeah. No, I mean, villain. Yeah. yeah. I got, I got conflicting answers about that when I asked people why that was, but, but the, um, so just to, just to clarify about Henry's testimony that just came out though. So he, what he basically says, I, if I'm following it correctly, because there's a lot of weird stuff in there, like there's shift trying to prompt him to yeah. say that it, if <laughs> things happened on X and Y date. And you can yeah. see that uh, basically there's a moment where if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it sounds like Schiff is trying to get him to say that the the data was exfiltrated on April 11th or April yeah. 16th. Yeah. And Henry's going like, yeah, you know, not really. He keeps trying to make the question go away. And then what he, what he really says is, uh, well, we have evidence that they were in there, but we never see the, the data actually leaving right um which which is uh seems to me a major point in all this but you know who who knows uh but that's what that's what he's saying right that's what he's saying if you can't see the data leaving how can you accuse someone of stealing the data it makes no sense and look that that exchange you bring up about Schiff, henry literally says i'm confused about the date right he doesn't he so this is and this is the guy who led the uh, forensics investigation and the in re- the remediation of the servers. So he's supposed to be like you know a top notch guy. And James Comey, when he testified to Congress, he said, "Yeah, we didn't get direct access to the servers, but we relied on this highly respected company." Well, now we learn, you know, over three years later, that this highly respected company has no clue on the basics of what happened in the server, and even acknowledges that there's no evidence of it. So it's it's unbelievable, and you know this should be a front page headline, but. It's obviously not getting the attention. And look, then you have to remember that the other component of this thing was this troll farm, which is just oh, comical, yeah. you know, that we were told that this social media operation pitted Americans against each other, sowed chaos, you know. Because uh, otherwise we all get along. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, no racism. And, no, exactly. Like it, it helped It helped uh, stoke racial tensions. According to Hillary Clinton, uh, the social media ads helped convince blacks not to vote in Michigan. I'm quoting that. Uh, those aren't my words. She actually yeah. said that. And then you look at these at these ads, and it's juvenile clickbait from a Russian troll farm. Most of it has nothing to do with the election. Most of it came after the election. So it's curious that ads that right. mostly air after the election somehow influence the election. And they're all, you know, it's like dumb memes, like you know, Jesus, a Jesus masturbation yeah, hotline. Yeah. You know, there's there's a there's one that says like it's there's a cartoon of Jesus consoling a young a dejected young man and he says if you're having problems with masturbation reach out to jesus and we'll beat it together <laughs> yeah, exactly. so we're, we're supposed and to it's, it's, yeah it says struggling you, with addiction to masturbation reach out to me and we will beat it together you can't hold hands with god when you are masturbating use our hotline <laughs> if you need help well we can indict the russians for their uh you know um male-centric masturbation ads i, I guess yeah but, right uh but right. you know um but yeah, so let's indict them for that. But can we indict them for the sweeping and sophisticated propaganda operation that literally every single news outlet told us like 
was influential and and reached hundreds of millions of people on and on. It's it's such garbage, and it's such garbage that Mueller uh, first had to drop his suggestion. He never outright said it. These like the Mueller people were so slick. They were so disingenuous in their language. So they suggested that this troll farm was part of this Russian government operation. The Russian troll farm challenged Mueller's indictments in court. And basically Mueller had to admit that actually they have no evidence at all tying this troll farm to the Russian government beyond the nickname of the owner, this guy Prigozhin, he's known as Putin's chef. chef. That's the only evidence they have of any remote tie between uh, the Kremlin and this troll farm. So the idea of this being part of a government operation was destroyed there. And by the way, if the Kremlin was responsible for it, they should be embarrassed because it was so juvenile as the Jesus ad embodies. But this was the topic of serious discussion. You know, the reason I saw that Jesus ad, it was included inside a Senate commission study by this Mm -hmm. firm, New Knowledge. It has the imprint of the Senate Intelligence Committee. And it includes that Jesus ad under a section of how the Kremlin exploited American vulnerability in a bid to recruit people. So that ad was an example of that. It's like, it's this level of idiocy, but everybody took it seriously. And it got so ridiculous that Mueller ultimately dropped the case, or Mueller, the Mueller team members who are still at the DOJ, ultimately just recently dropped the case. And they claimed amazingly that if they were to continue the case, that the discovery process would jeopardize American national security. Well, they, somehow- in that case, they wouldn't even let the, the client see all the discovery, right? They, they, they requested a special process whereby only the, the, the lawyers would, would get to see the actual yeah. evidence. Yeah, right? but, but even that request was, according to these prosecutors, a threat to national security that somehow fighting this troll farm case, well, it's, it's laughable. So uh, there are a million things in this, um, in, in all this testimony. I mean, there's thousands of pages of this stuff. But I, I must have had three dozen moments where I, I read a line. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, and my favorite, I think, was when they asked McCabe, why did you did you seek a FISA warrant on Carter yes. Page and not yeah. Papadopoulos? And the answer is um, because we we the evidence didn't particular didn't particularly indicate that Papadopoulos was actually in touch with any Russians. So. <laughs> this is the predicate for the entire crossfire hurricane FBI investigation. Doesn't that mean we have to walk back like three years of exposés and stories about about everything from the you know Papadopoulos to the I mean remember when they when the news first broke that there was an FBI investigation at, at those hearings in March 2017. There were like weeks of stories about how this was the biggest thing since Watergate, yep. except they already knew at that point that the opening of the investigation was was a non was a dead end. It didn't lead into any Russians. It's just amazing. I mean, I mean, how how many things should be being walked back at this point and aren't? You know, you know. I think the problem is it's like it's sensory overload. I mean, there have been so many bombshells that then get retracted and so many embarrassing disclosures, and I think. There's a fatigue now. There's only so much people can. I mean, first of all, people are just tired of the story because it's. Well, of course. It was. Yeah. It's so dumb and it dominated everything for over three years. So people understandably want to move on. And of course, you know, this is a dynamic you've written about extensively, Matt. The 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 people who commit the mistakes are the last people to hold themselves accountable in media. You know, there's just this culture of complete impunity. There's 
you know, um, there's, you know, I just saw like the Atlantic just published this huge piece Foyer. by Franklin Foyer <laughs> about how Putin is going to sabotage the 2020 election. And last time I saw Foyer, he was pushing this story that Trump and Russia communicated via the, the via the servers of this bank, Alpha Bank, which is it's just so moronic on its face. And of course, it's one of many things that have been debunked. But Foyer can go ahead and do it. And, you know, like he can say things like he has a line in his piece that where he says that, you know, Putin has gotten everything he wanted out of Trump as Trump continues to do things on Putin's wish list. When the reality is that actually in Trump, we've gotten one of the most hawkish presidents on Russia in decades. I mean, what Trump is doing with Russia is literally threatening global extinction, uh, pulling out of the INF treaty, and then now threatening to kill the last remaining treaty, uh, limiting our nuclear stockpiles, the New START treaty. And, you know, uh, launching a coup in Venezuela against uh, Russia's ally there, uh, trying to block a construction of a Russia-German gas pipeline, which is a really important project. Well, to, to, Russia. to Russia, that's a, that's a hugely important issue. The, pi the pipeline thing is, you know, th that, that would be their number one issue, I would think. How would policy. you know, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and Trump Who is trying been to talking to. <laughs> And Trump is trying to stop it. He's even, you know, uh, threatening sanctions over it. But all that just gets ignored because it doesn't jibe with the narrative that liberals like Franklin Foyer and the Atlantic have been pushing. And it's like people would rather live in a fantasy world, in this comforting fantasy world, a privileged protection, uh, pr protecting fantasy world, than acknowledge policies that are literally threatening global extinction. It's like and challenge them. It's crazy. What's scary to me is that there are people who are civilians who I respect, they're smart, they're progressive, they like Sanders, uh, and they, someone I was talking to yesterday was really upset. I was actually uh, telling them about your clip, Matt, on Rising, where you're talking about the Flynn story and how he was set up. And this person was really upset and he was like, oh, great, Trump is just gonna use this. He's gonna win again, he's gonna use this. And I was like, it's not my fault. It's not. I mean, <laughs> he wasn't upset at you per se. He was just upset right. about this being revealed. And I was like, "You, this is why you can't build things on lies. It's just not going to work. And that's what I find so frustrating is that even if you are politically motivated and your goal is to defeat Trump, it's not going to work. It's not. And, and this is where, you know, people got duped into that drinking way, I mean. the Kool-Aid. And, um, you know, for some people, I understand it because, you know, Trump is so scary and the people right. around him are so scary. And, you know, there's obviously uh, it's totally justified to want him gone by any means necessary. And the means we were presented were via this Russia investigation and Robert Mueller. So I get why it was alluring. But for people whose job it is to collect right. information and relay it accurately to the public. I mean, the, there, it wasn't just fear of Trump and Trump trauma. There was, again, this incentive to peddle the narrative because that's what was fashionable to the establishment. And that's where way too many people got duped, including in progressive adversarial spaces. Like it's, you know, for me, look, I'll tell you a personal story. Like I, I was talking to a, a major publisher about doing a book on this and the publisher told me, you know, I'd like to do it, but if I publish this, too many of my friends would be mad at me, <laughs> you know? Wow. And, and that to me just summed up sort of the, the mindset of where liberal culture was at, especially under Russiagate, where it's just, you know, no matter the consequences, no matter the merits, 
it just this became this is just how you became uh, accepted inside the club is if you went along with this because that's what was presented to us and you know i get it if you know like people like franklin foyer and other people who you know who identify with the leadership of the democratic party i get why they went along but to see progressives get duped by it and to duped into something that was so destructive and so destructive to you know progressives own agendas i think there is a lesson there for a lot of people a lot of people to learn yeah. On, on, the, on the journalism front, what makes this different from the WMD story? In other words, when that happened, I mean, that was a big, fia- a similarly enormous fiasco for journalism. But there was a, an urge to self-audit after that mistake took place. And we're, except for Eric Wemple at the Washington Post, I, <laughs> yeah. I can't think of anybody else who's even trying to go there now with this even though i mean you you could make the argument that this is going to be even more cataclysmic for our our reputation than that episode was what 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 changed you know or or is it just a a partisan issue we're gonna have to go to war for people to admit mistakes yeah honestly yeah that might be it 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 might you know um part of it is i think you know hostility to trump amongst the elite amongst you know the educated elite you know is so bipartisan at this point there are many republicans in privileged positions who want him gone as well like people like you know david from and the never trumpers that that click and so just the the space for any kind of dissent inside that that spectrum is just has has been quashed out and i think the um accusing people of being a trump supporter or uh whatever a russia apologist i mean that's i guess that's been an effective scare tactic for some people Although, again, whenever I get accused of that, I think I, I, I tell people I, I can't think of a bigger gift to Trump than a channel is resistance into a stupid conspiracy theory. Right. I mean, what more could he get? What more could he be asked for than have instead of people being organized to around Medicare for all or to protest the tax cut, the the, the biggest upward transfer of wealth in U.S. history at the t- at the time? Maybe now the coronavirus stimulus, uh, stimulus bill has surpassed that. But, you know, when Trump pa- and the Republicans passed their tax cut, there were bigger protests to save Jeff Sessions' job than there were against the tax cut or than there were to save the Iran nuclear deal or to save healthcare. I mean, it reduced the resistance into such a um, such a joke and no wonder it didn't resonate. You know, you remember at the beginning of the Trump administration, there was some excitement. You know, there was the Women's March. There was the there was the protest at the airports against the Muslim ban. There was, you know, a lot of sympathy for undocumented immigrants and the, and the brutality that they were enduring. And there was energy. Well, then Russiagate kicks into high gear and everybody gets kicked to the curb, to the sidelines. And now the way to resist Trump is watching MSNBC every day and waiting on Robert Mueller to, to deliver the goods. So it was the most like anti-progressive and anti-democratic thing. And unfortunately, I think because it just it was so widely accepted by elite opinion makers, we're just not going to see any accountability. Look, listen, I, I have to call people out here because um, when you even have adversarial outlets like Democracy Now! and The Intercept and many of, pe- of my colleagues at The Nation magazine buying into it too, it's very hard for the mainstream line to be challenged because if even the people who right. traditionally are the ones pushing back and you know breaking the sound barrier uh, are now the ones parroting the same thing because I think a lot of people on the progressive side just caught up in the excitement that it was going to bring down Donald Trump. 
it makes it just impossible for any self-reflection. Has anyone given these, um, the CrowdStrike revelations were made very recently. Um, has anyone come forward to acknowledge them at all? No, no, it's, it's, it's a lot of just cowardice and people um, getting away with taking part in a scam that, you know, uh, is to me unconscionable. And, uh, but yet because it's so widespread and because the skeptics quote unquote, right. were so demonized and, Marginalized. You, know, you know, you, you know, it's just, there's no incentive to come forward and have any integrity. Um, that, I think that's just how it is. I saw you talking about this with Jimmy Dore the other oh day. Oh my God, that was hilarious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but can you just share with people what Chris Hayes's um, response to this was? Because he actually was acknowledging this part of it, right? And I feel bad because I like Chris. But... I know, but uh, me too. But I feel like we I have like, to. I like Chris too. And hearing this answer from him, you know, I know deep down he's a he's someone with integrity and with a lot of smarts, very gifted um, and principles. And so I feel for him. He's in, you know, and I don't judge him because, you know, he has a family and he is in a very lucrative position hosting a cable news show. It's like, you know, it's a it's has a lot of benefits. And so I, I get that, you know, why he might choose to say that to to go along with things like Russiagate, even if perhaps deep down he knows it's all a fraud because he had no other choice being at MSNBC. Um, but the way he rationalizes it, the way he rationalizes it now in this interview in the New Yorker is just, it's pathetic and it's hilarious. We're basically, so he's asked, you know, whether or not MSNBC is taking part in propagating conspiracy theories. And, you know, the obvious uh, thing that's being referred to here is Russiagate. And Chris actually acknowledges, cause he has to now because it's, you can't hide it anymore. But yeah, yeah, there was a lot of craziness, but what he does is he blames it on Russia. And he says, we can't deny Russia's agency here. Uh, and that, you know, they're, at, they're the seed that flowered all of this and he goes on to compare what he says russia did to people like him in making him cover russiagate uh from the point of view of you know pushing the collusion theory for three years and by the way excluding all skeptics including matt who was on chris's show in early i was the last one of us right you were the last skeptic on you were on in like early 2017 i think Mm -hmm. uh glenn was on ari melber's show in like december 2016 you guys were like the last one I know. out on, but, but you were so. So Chris is basically blaming Russia for the fact that he excluded Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald for over three years, while meanwhile pushing, you know, all this propaganda that Trump and Russia were in cahoots. And he's saying that it was Russia's fault. And then he goes on to compare it to what the FBI did to the Black Panthers with like harassment and Chris propaganda. Chris is the Huey P. Newton of uh, MSNBC. Yeah, which is just so it's like the the like the irony there and the and the hilarity is like it's like there's you, too you much You actually need to uh, need a minute to figure out how funny that is. You yeah. do you really do because first of all yeah. first of all, you know, the FBI was like, you know, literally assassinating people right. know, or, or and and harassing people and uh making people's lives miserable. So he's somehow comparing that to what he imagines Russia did to him by what? Like like how did Russia make Chris Hayes not interview any skeptics for three years and make him hey let's Russia beat masturbation together let's well, beat yeah. it together yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah yeah right so and then and then and then uh, and then also another irony is that the people who were attacking the black panthers were the same uh, intelligence officials who chris hayes was worshiping on his show every right. single night and even bringing on as his colleagues so john brennan the ex-director of the cia is now an msnbc analyst so it's like it's what happens when you're highly educated and you're woke 
and you need to come up with a educated woke explanation for why you served as a tool of the establishment and pushing an intellectual one too yeah the dumbest conspiracy theory ever for three years and that's what he came up with and then at the and then he also comes up with this like epistemic jargon where he says there's something fairly endemic about about the process of i guess buying into conspiracy theories as if we're all just predisposed to do that when no really the reason why he did that was because that was the narrative that msnbc in lockstep with the democratic party establishment pushed for three years and you know it's funny to see him now try to rationalize and explain it my favorite part was the agency part because yeah. <laughs> you don't give agency to bad actors. I mean, again, it's just there's so much. I mean, that, that's not the trend, right? You you tend to give agency when you're engaged in this discourse to people who are um, less powerful, right? Yeah. But it's funny. It's like don't infantilize Russia. Yeah. Don't exactly. deny them their agency. Yeah. It just it's a, it's like a brain. Yeah, it's a total nightmare. But what he's doing though know, is denying is denying his own agency. Uh, yeah, you're right. In 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 you know this is like a jargon blizzard here yeah it's a jargon blizzard give him yeah, a yeah. self-help we should give him a self-help book so here's a difficult question i want to pose to you um uh okay so there's news coming out today that the they're, they're releasing names of um people who made requests to unmask the names of folks like michael flynn people who have been surveilled under programs like fisa for those of you who don't know, like we don't actively, uh, allegedly anyway, we don't we don't actively listen to Americans through our foreign intelligence surveillance programs. But upon request, the FBI can unmask these names, and you can uh, find out whatever conversations they might have with other with foreign surveilled individuals. So we're finding out all this stuff about surveillance practices. And I guess the question I have for you is, what's your take on how Russiagate got started? Was this, was this, is this just something that developed as a course of our routine overuse of these kinds of surveillance practices? Or was it something like the way the, the Trump folks believe is it was a specific massive conspiracy to go after Donald Trump? Or was it they actually believed Russia was up to something and they, they just got in over their heads? Like, what's your take on that? I definitely think there was, it was at least partly driven by hostility, not just to Trump, but people like Michael Flynn. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we even know that like when uh, Trump and Obama met after Trump won, that Obama <laughs> tried to warn Trump not to hire Flynn, which is funny because like, why would Trump listen to the guy from the party that he just defeated? Like, you know, and like it, it then, you know, but anyway, and there's there's animus towards Flynn for various reasons. Apparently, he has a bad reputation among some people inside the intelligence community, and he also was instrumental in criticizing and actually publicly um, in the Seymour Hersh story, right? In the exactly, like he he raised you know his when he when he when he headed the Defense Intelligence Agency, you know he his uh, DIA produced a report that basically pointed out to the people that the U.S. was going to be supporting in Syria were really effectively Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And that the more the U.S., if the U.S. engages in a proxy war to undermine Assad, that Al-Qaeda and and ISIS would be strengthened. And then Flynn also helped raise questions about claims that the Syrian government committed chemical attacks in, uh, in Ghouta, especially. So there was animus towards Flynn. And I think certainly he's definitely targeted. I mean, there's all, there's crazy stories. You've written about that, that Russian born academic, 
who that was, was crazy. Used, who was like a fake, like they used her as a fake. She didn't realize it, but they tried to basically use her as a fake honeypot against Flynn and accuse them of having an affair. Uh, and so there was some kind of operation being ran against Flynn. And then, yeah, uh, people obviously did not like John Brennan has made no secret of how much he reviles Donald Trump. And John Brennan played an instrumental role in this whole thing from the beginning. Uh, he shared intelligence with all sorts of people. I believe he's responsible for some of the key leaks, especially in the summer of 2016. So um, I think it's a combination of uh, animus towards people like Flynn and Trump. Maybe also they were trying to undermine Trump's stated call for better relations with Russia because you know on the campaign trail, Trump was saying all these unorthodox things like he wanted to end uh, you know, U.S. interventions in Libya and Syria, and he wanted to have better relations with Russia, which at the time was not a popular Democratic Party talking point. And I think there, I mean, I'm only guessing, but maybe there are people inside the national security state who didn't want that and wanted to undermine that and basically tainting Trump with this impression that he was complicit with a foreign power with Russia was one way to undermine him and constrain him. And one way to push his administration, no matter what it's it, it, what no matter what its intentions were, in a hawkish direction, you know. So, for example, you know, um, Trump came in talking about having better relations with Russia, but then he's accused constantly of being a Putin puppet. So he takes a series of steps that I think help show that he's not, including, for example, sending weapons to Ukraine uh, that the same weapons that Obama refused to send when he was in office because he didn't want it to, them to go to neo-Nazis and didn't want to further inflame a proxy war. So, I mean, I I can only guess as to what the motives were, but I don't think it was accidental. Certainly not. I think there was some kind of effort here to uh, taint Trump and uh, maybe there were some kind of geopolitical motives involved there. I don't know. What do you think, Matt? I mean, I, I guess there's there's a couple of questions here. Do you think that they would have done this if they had any idea that any of this would have been been made public? I mean, is it is it possible that some of this happened just because there are elements of this that are, that feel like like they were just that they did they do this, these kinds of surveillances where they as a matter of routine and they just it just got out of hand. There's some evidence that they've done these kinds of unmaskings before. Um, but uh, I just can't. I can't understand how they how they let this get so out of control, and that, and how they thought it would all play out well in the end. It, they, at some point, they must have sincerely believed that there was something there. I, that's the only thing I can conclude. I don't share that conclusion. No, I, no. I I think they started something based on totally overzealously, based on the ridiculous Papadopoulos tip. Then they expanded it to other people. Then they commit fraud on the FISA court by using the Steele dossier and getting the wiretaps on Carter Page. And then they keep going even after Trump takes office and I th and they go after Flynn. I think possibly because Flynn is in, is in a position because he has intelligence experience to get in their way. And a lot of this seems aimed at getting ultimately getting a special counsel appointed and then getting the special counsel put in the hopes that Mueller can bring Trump down, whether it's on some fake collusion thing or get him on obstruction. So I, I certainly think just these people don't like Trump for their own narrow reasons, not for the reasons that I, I don't like Trump, uh, but I don't think they saw him as a suitable steward of the you know, US empire. And I think from there you have this deliberate effort to make life hard for him and even, even bring him down. 
I've seen Robbie Martin push back on that point that you just made about, um, not in a really strong way, but the, the thesis that maybe Trump was trying to appeal to liberal pressure to be more hawkish or interventionist. But I think that even if we don't know the motives, that certainly created the space for him to do that, right? Like, yeah, the, oh, sure. yeah. the resistance yeah. did not organize around pressuring Trump to not do that. Like, we, yeah. they didn't organize around not arming Ukraine. Yeah, I don't know if if Trump, maybe Trump would have been just as hawkish on Russia, even without this whole thing. I think it's quite possible. The people around him are all neocons. And the one person who was talking about cooperating with Russia, Flynn, he was he was like they got rid of him pretty early on so you know i i don't i don't blame liberal pressure entirely for trump being a russia hawk but certainly it didn't help and it just raises the questions why should liberals be encouraging trump to you know escalate tensions with the other uh right. with the world's other nuclear power right it shows a, a lack of responsibility on their part whether or not it it directly made him do that have you lost friends over this i mean like uh, did, what, what's what's been what have the last few years been like for you because you know obviously there there weren't that many folks who were doing what you were doing and it was probably a pretty lonely place and what what was your decision making like when you decided okay i'm gonna say this in public and or i'm not gonna say this uh what was that experience like i have lost friends i mean not like super close friends but right i mean all my super close friends just thought this whole thing was hilarious from the start and no one <laughs> you know um and uh, but uh, yeah, I did. You know, I, I lost some media friends, people who, you know, who I've known for a long time and who I like, you know, I, I still think do good work. But it became like, you know, pushing back on this. I think they in their minds associated that with some kind of support for Trump somehow. When really, from a partisan point of view, I was trying to help avoid hand Trump. I think the biggest reelection gift he could get. And it's um, so, you know, but um and I've lost, you know, and it's it's been sad to me, especially, you know, Democracy Now! is where I worked for 10 years. And I love that show. It's where I learned to do journalism. Even before I worked there, I was a big fan of it. And, you know, to their credit, they had on Glenn Greenwald sometimes. But otherwise, when he wasn't on, there were, they had on, you know, Marcy Wheeler was their top Russiagate analyst. And she was one of the leading conspiracy theorists out there. Even went to the FBI claiming that she had it, like to burn a source, which is a whole other story. So it was depressing to see, you know, noble institutions and, and old colleagues fall for it and push it. And even when being told the evidence, still not being, uh, still not correcting themselves, um, because I think it just, this is what was fashionable for, for so long. And so, you know, but I, you know, look, I, through the process, I've also just, um, you know, I've met a whole bunch of all different people and I met a lot of Trump supporters that I otherwise would never would have met. And, I, you know, I, I gained some window into their thinking and to how they see the world. And, you know, I don't agree with them, but I appreciate the opportunity to interact with with anybody. And um, I also, uh, you know, you know, out of all this, you know, I joined the gray zone with Max Blumenthal and Max is, you know, like uncompromising in his principles. And I think just a terrific journalist. So, you know, we've been able to to grow out of it and to, you know, recognize those who share our values and, and, and work with them. And so, you know, it, it's actually been, been heartening. Uh, it was just sad seeing like those moments when it just seemed everybody was going along with it. it there were some lonely moments, I guess, but you know, that's just whatever I, I can handle that. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and can you just tell people about what you do at pushback and the types of guests you have and i push back you know nice. that's what i do at pushback i you know i i uh yeah i i try to interview people and i try to have as many you know uh uh adversarial discussions as i can though it's getting harder and harder especially on russiagate like uh you know like glenn just uh tweeted something about how you know he has a new show for the intercept system update and he says that he invited on a whole bunch of russiagate pundits to talk to him but nobody nobody agreed yeah um, they have other engagements all of a sudden yes exactly exactly yeah. so you know yeah but uh yeah so uh, and and that's at the gray zone and i also do uh, other journalism at the Gray Zone too, uh, along with my colleagues Max Blumenthal and Anya Parampil and Ben Norton. It's definitely sometimes awkward at dinner parties, and I'm not, Russiagate <laughs> isn't particularly my lane, but um, it's definitely become awkward at like certain holiday parties for people who don't accept it. So one last question: Do, do you think that, that Russiagate has kind of birthed a new reportorial style? Uh, like I. I it's a very vague question, but I feel like I see elements of the same approach in lots of different stories now where there'll be a bit or, or a hint of something that will appear in the news and it will, there'll, there'll be just this blizzard of editorializing that happens around it before anybody really knows what, what's actually happening with, with the story. And I, I feel like that was a characteristic of, of all these bombshells in, in Russiagate. Yes. They, they were... They were somehow they're almost pre-factual, right? They were, they were the, the the outrage happened before the information was conveyed, and um, it, it's almost become part of like the commercial formula of how we how we sell news, uh, hasn't it? I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm sorry again. It's sorry. It's a vague question, but it's been interesting to me. No, I totally agree. I try. I'm trying to think of if there's any precedent for it before RussiaGate, but no. I mean, literally, you know, some you know like just randomly i remember like there was one day when hope hicks wrote some email and it was released and then that became like msnbc's wall-to-wall -wall coverage for like four hours and it's all this ephemeral garbage that proves nothing and shows nothing but yet because it's sensational it just gets it was pounced on and no matter how many times bombshells were retracted i mean it there's so many of them now yeah, you you moved on. You, yeah. Like by the time they're retracted, you're like eight scandals down the road, so it exactly. doesn't matter, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in, ter in terms of the formula for the business, it, it's just like immaterial. Yeah. But it's just, it's interesting that that story, for all of its flaws and all the things that we dislike about it, like people like us, uh, it was you know successful financially for these companies, wasn't it? Oh my God! I was—I mean, MSNBC wasn't doing so well before RussiaGate, but this was huge for them because every night, you know, they were presenting people with this real-life spy thriller, with the added incentive that it was going to bring down the president that everybody hates. You know, so you know, it's like watching Rachel Maddow became like a ritual for liberal America, and like yeah, <laughs> Katie's doing her Rachel imitation. Uh, my hands and, together. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I, I, I talked to some people who got caught up in it and they like, there's a sense of like fatigue on them where they were like, they kept holding on, they kept watching. And it was like, there was always the sense that the bombshell was about to drop, that the smoking gun was coming, but it never came. And finally they gave up and it was like letting go of a, of a relative because it's got so emotional for so many people. It really, it's such a successful propaganda operation. Uh, probably more successful than the Iraq war 
uh, for sure. People were not emotionally involved in that in the same way. I mean, yeah. there, there were there was some patriotism, some jingoism that happened there. But this was this like touched people in this elemental way. And they, they weren't able to stay away from it. Uh, and that was just extremely successful. And I, I, I worry that it's going to turn into, you know, a, a theme for how you do things in the future. I mean, you, you don't even need a whole lot of information to do it. That's the, that's the beauty of it. That's a scary thought, but I think that's quite, quite prescient. It, yeah. And it does seem like just going back to that question you had asked Matt about, um, and that you just brought up the comparison between the Iraq, the WMD narrative and the Russiagate narrative. It does seem like one of the issues is that there isn't any direct obvious fallout, right? Like I think people were in some ways forced to reckon with the WMDs because there was, first of all, it was much less complicated than this story um, in terms of keeping track of all the moving pieces. Like either there were WMDs there or there weren't. Hmm. Also, it was from the beginning much more partisan. So you did have while you had some terrible libs supporting Bush, a lot of them didn't. Um, and yeah, there wasn't a war that has come from this, despite you know the comparing it to Pearl Harbor, which would require a, a, or could lead to another world war. But I do wonder if that's also part of it. Yeah, it just wasted everyone's time. I mean, really, it just was a a massive time waste. Now. If Trump gets reelected, though, um, that I think will be the catastrophe that Russiagate has really wrought because, you know, all the time spent talking about, you know, Russian social media posts and email hacking and a P tape and all this stuff that just is not just fiction, but also, you know, the issue itself is no relationship to people's actually material needs it's also upper class and removed from everyday life uh will have just been a huge wasted opportunity that where democrats could have been mobilizing a real opposition to trump around real issues it got channeled into this fiction and if 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 trump gets reelected, i think russiagate will be you know a big reason why even right. with his stuff on the pandemic i feel like he gets a lot of get out of jail free cards because the media just blew yeah. their credibility yeah. yeah yeah exactly what would what would the pandemic look like right now uh and would people be more trusting of the media when the media accurately tells people that trump has mishandled it and that this is serious would things be different if the same media hadn't been telling people for three years that trump is a russian agent you know would I mean there be more trust and it's also really condescending for when you see pundits now making fun of people who watch Fox News and who believe some of the conspiracy theories that are being put out now about the pandemic. It's really hypocritical for them to make fun of anybody who believes in conspiracy theories when you know, it was liberal opinion that was pushing the dumbest conspiracy theory ever for over three years and refusing to abandon it despite all the countervailing evidence. So there's actually a lot of projection going on when you know Fox News viewers are mocked and uh, and it because, you know, at the highest levels of quote unquote respectable opinion, the worst conspiracy of them all was what was in style. Amazing. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much thank for coming so much. on. Yeah. Congratulations on sticking to this through, through this all these years. <laughs> You've done a great job and uh, and hope to have you on again. Thanks a lot for having me. Wow, that was great. It was great. Oh, oh. my God, we didn't ask him the Canada question. 
Oh, that's right. We're going to have to have him back on. He was so polite, he wouldn't have answered it anyway. Let's just say that uh, on on his behalf, he would have demurred. He would have demurred, yeah. And he would would have taken no position so as not to offend either of us. Right. Yeah. He would have said, sorry, about it, but no Um, position. (laughs) Boot it, yeah. No, No, that was great. Um, Aaron's great. And he's... He's kind of tired. What I like about the way he handles this in public is that he um, he he takes a lot of people on on social media, but he he's never nasty about it. He kind of always maintains this like even strain. Some reminds um, me so much of myself. <laughs> You're like peas in a pod, right? Yeah. No, but I mean, he, he's taken a lot of abuse over the years, and he's he's really hung in there and um, and has been consistent. Uh, so yeah, he, he's, he's great. Yeah. Um, but, uh, that was really interesting. Um, and, uh, there's going to be more on this story, unfortunately coming out. So we should probably have him on again, uh, at some point, but it is so frustrating, the lack of accountability. Well, he talks about Franklin Foyer, right? To, just, just to do for a brief vignette about this, you know, Franklin Foyer has this massive new story about the next round of Russian interference. But among these new revelations that came out this week, it turns out that the the source, the original source for that story about Russia communicating with Al, uh, Trump communicating with Alpha Bank was a DNC lawyer named Michael Sussman. That's what one of the things in the so that that whole story was is complete bogosity. And you know, if you were the person who did that story, which Foyer is. Um, normally at this point you'd be publicly kind of hanging your head and saying i'm sorry you know like you know asking for forgiveness but instead they're just doubling down which is it's kind of amazing it's it's actually impressive on on some level don't you think yeah it's yeah it's like very you know ballsy or you know it's it's like uh totally so sure of yourself give i want that kind of self-confidence right yeah me too yeah, we we should ask for some of that. Yeah, anyway, they obviously have extra. Yeah, they, they can they can bottle it up and send it to us. But yeah. uh, anyway, uh, thank thanks to everybody. Uh, keep yeah. sending us pictures of Kurt Loder. Yes, uh, we should get Kurt Loder on the show. We should. Yeah, um, any of them. Any yeah, I know from any time period. Any time period. Yeah. If you have a time we'll traveling device and you can yeah. reach reach Kurt Loder in thirteen ninety eight, uh, let us know. Uh, don't watch. Uh, Pod, Pod Save, Save America. America. Never, if, ever. Yeah. It's even less. I, I'm really mad about it now. And get merch. Get merch. You guys want merch. merch. How right. else yes. can you get through this pandemic? Right. You have no, you, you have literally nothing else to do. Yeah. And and send us your questions. Uh, you can tag me and Matt. Tag Matt at M Taibi and I'm letter K, letter T, H A L P S. Cool. All right. Great. We'll see you next week. All right. Bye. <laughs>Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.